This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. And we're going to begin this episode with a story out of Washington, D.C. that's about this music we're listening to right now called Go Go. Yeah, that's not Nelly, y'all. Go-Go is a style of funk that originated here in D.C. And when Go-Go was at its height in the 1980s, it was the sound of the city. It was black people's music and specifically poor and working class black people's music. And back in the day, there used to be a bunch of Go-Go's. That's what the Go-Go clubs are called in this neighborhood called Shaw. It's a neighborhood that's become unrecognizable to a lot of the people who grew up there because of gentrification. Mm But there is this business owner in Shaw who still plays go-go music on big speakers outside of his Metro PCS cell phone shop on the corner of 7th and Florida. Yep. And that little cell phone store is kind of a neighborhood institution. Here's Mohammed Osman. He grew up in the area. I've seen D.C. change so much, especially in the past five years. And so much like, OK, change is good, but it's not always good when it's when it's changing memories that you've had your entire life. That go-go music playing from Metro PCS is a reminder that I'm still home. I'm still in D.C. My barbershop plays go-go music. My parents met each other in the go-go. You know, it's something that is running through my veins. That's my culture, D.C. culture. A lot of D.C. residents felt like their culture was under attack when that Metro PCS owner was told to turn off the go-go. My name is Rachel Kurzius. I'm the senior editor of DCist. Rachel wrote a story about all this for DCist. It came out on Monday, April 8th, and that story got a lot of attention. I interviewed her about what happened, and we started on the corner of 7th and Florida. The corner where the Metro PCS is situated is on a block that's been called Chuck Brown Way. It's named after the godfather of go-go music in D.C. and elsewhere. And it's a very busy corner. It used to be filled with go-go clubs. And over the past decade and a half, I would say, it's changed quite a bit now. There's apartment complexes that have been built, but that Metro PCS has grounded that corner in a constant sound for the past 24 years. I know it's in a bright red building. (laughs) Yes, it is in a bright red building. It's where people can go if they want to buy cell phones or get their cell phones repaired. And as the speakers outside promise, it's also where you can go to get the newest, hottest go-go CDs in the back. And tell us about the owner of this Metro PCS, Donald Campbell, who's been playing go-go music out of these speakers, you know, for 20 plus years now. So Don Campbell, before he started this Metro PCS store, was a big go-go head and he he helped run some go-go clubs. And for him, he saw it as, as his responsibility to help keep the music alive. And by playing the music outside and beckoning people to come in to both hear the go-go or to just pass by on their day and get that kind of groovy boost on the way to where they were going, he saw that as a mission. And he was told he had to stop playing his music out of these speakers on this corner. Why? What happened? Yes. So what Campbell told me was that T-Mobile, which acquired Metro PCS a number of years back, had reached out to him and said, basically, you need to turn off this music. We've gotten a complaint from a nearby resident, and they're threatening a lawsuit. This isn't the first time that Campbell has been confronted with people complaining about what they deem as quote, excessive volume blaring from those speakers. The most localized politician has said that people have complained for years about this, but the way that noise 
gets measured according to D.C. law means that Campbell has actually always been well within the letter of the law. So even though D.C. officials have come by to measure the sounds, he's never gotten any kind of citation. And you wrote in your article that he only plays his music during business hours. That's exactly right. And just for some context for people who haven't been to that area, Metro PCS is blaring music during the day, but it's a huge nightlife location. So there are a lot of nightclubs, bars, music venues nearby, and you can certainly hear quite a bit of noise in the evening as well when Metro PCS has brought in their speakers for the day. So the T-Mobile people who have taken over Metro PCS, they tell Donald, we've gotten a complaint, you need to stop, and does he comply? What, What happens next? About a month ago, he was told that he had to turn off the speakers or at least bring them inside, right, and really mute that sound that people had come to expect from a block away. And at first, he was trying to reason with them, and they basically told him, this complaint goes straight to the top. There's nothing you can do. So about two weeks ago was the day that Campbell realized that he had to bring those speakers inside. And how did you hear about this story? Someone had noticed that the music had stopped or at least been turned down so significantly the speakers were gone from out front and Mm -hmm. tweeted about it. And they had the hashtag don't mute DC and it immediately blew up. But there was a lot of confusion. Some people were saying, well, I recently heard the music playing when I walked by. I don't know what happened. And so I was able to get in touch with Campbell and really ask him what's going on. He had been speaking with some community activists, but he was disinclined at first to come forward because he was afraid for his livelihood. He certainly didn't want to get T-Mobile in trouble and have there be an altercation there. So he Mm -hmm. was reticent at first to speak out. How did the Shea get involved in this? This is this mixed-use complex that's there in the neighborhood um, that you write about in your story. How is the Shea involved in all of this? Well, for non-D.C. residents, the Shea has taken on such an intense symbolic heft. It's one of many mixed-use developments that have come into the neighborhood, but for some reason it's become more of a sign of a changing neighborhood, of gentrification, of new residents coming in and changing the way that Shaw looks and feels than other complexes that have come up and that have even been built by the same developer. But for some reason, the Shea has struck a particular chord. Maybe it has to do with the retail downstairs that's quite high-end. Yeah, there's a Bonobos, which is like a fancy men's brand. The way that the Shea got involved in this scenario is that Campbell told me that not only did the nearby resident complain, but it was a resident from the Shea. That really crystallized the story as one of new wealthy residents coming in inspired to move in by what they saw as an exciting cultural destination. And then as soon as they arrived there saying, well, I kind of like some of the culture, but not when it inconveniences me. I looked up uh, rents at the Shea Mm -hmm. just because I was curious. The smallest apartment there is a studio. It's 495 square feet and it goes for 1985 a month. That rent is incredibly high. It's also not totally out of the ordinary for Washington, D.C., which is a place with incredibly high rents overall. So, yes, the Shea is on the higher end of that. But D.C. altogether has seen enormous increases in cost of living over the past decade and a half. You wrote in your article about this neighborhood, 
Shaw, which the Shea is in, which this Metro PCS store is in. And um, you gave some census data. The black population there dropped 34 percent in 20 years. And that is 2010 census data. We don't even have the 2020 census data yet. Yeah. I mean, and, and we can only assume that that number has precipitously dropped further in the intervening nine years. Can you describe the reaction since your story has come out? What's happened now? So our story broke on Monday. Monday Mm -hmm. evening, there was a rally in front of the CVS that's basically in between the Shea and the Metro PCS. Black Family Reunion. Stone Stone Picnic. Malcolm X Day. So it was in support of the Metro PCS's ability to play their music, but it was also this broader question about who is in control of what we deem noise. They were saying, go-go isn't noise. Go-go is music. Go-go is our cultural heritage. And silencing it is a very powerful and upsetting thing to do. And on Tuesday, we saw even bigger rally. Many, many hundreds of people gathered in a very popular corner of D.C., a short walk away from where the Metro PCS is, as go-go bands played. And I should also say that as people are gathering, there are also politicians getting involved. Mayor Muriel Bowser, who's, you know, the executive of D.C., pointed people towards a petition and and told them that they should sign it that told T-Mobile to turn the music back on. All right. So then what happened on Wednesday? A tweet came out from T-Mobile CEO, which basically said the music can keep on going. We don't want to kill the music in Shaw. And there was jubilation among the crowd as Bust and Loose started blaring from those speakers. Again, people were dancing. People were so excited. As people were dancing outside, I watched... Campbell, take it in for a moment and then walk inside. And when I asked him what he was doing, he told me he had to go pick out the next CD. It feels like this story got wrapped up with a nice tidy bow and we have a happy ending now. Don can play his music. But then that also feels like it's not quite the whole story. Yes. And you could hear a lot of activists expressing a little bit of frustration at how quickly the community aligned themselves behind Metro PCS with these huge rallies, incredible support. And they're saying, look, there's a rent strike going on two metro stops away. Where are all of your bodies on the line when we're talking about those kinds of rallies and support? And that it's these more symbolic issues that people can grasp onto. I think it's because it's easier to wrap your head around. The music was on and then it turned off and people were upset about it. And now it's turning back on. And that's a really easy narrative to grasp, whereas these broader questions of how do we build a city that feels inclusive to all of its residents is a much harder one to tackle. That's Rachel Kurzius, the senior editor for DCist. And when we come back, we talk to a writer who says that in order to understand DC's racial politics over the last couple decades, you kind of have to understand the story of Go-Go. Stay with us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from REI, presenting Wild Ideas Worth Living, a podcast that explores everything from mindfulness in school to adventures in space. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from Netflix's new podcast, Strong Black Lead, celebrating black storytelling and the creatives who make it possible. Every week, award-winning podcaster Tracy Clayton interviews black Hollywood legends, including Lynn Whitfield, Loretta Devine, and John Witherspoon. Listen and subscribe to Strong Black Lead everywhere podcasts are available. New episodes every Tuesday and follow Strong Black Lead on social. America has a long history of white nationalism, and its influence reaches farther than you might think. You can go back and you can read the New York Times coverage. You can read Hitler saying it was America who taught us we should not open our arms equally to other nations. This week on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Shireen. Jean. Code Switch, and we're back with your interview with Natalie Hopkinson, the author of Go Go Live, The Musical Life and Death of a Chocolate City. I want y'all to make some noise, kitty yo. Special shout going out to all the lovely young ladies. For those of our listeners who have never heard Go Go before, like, what is Go Go? Go Go music is a genre that was created by Chuck Brown in the 1970s. It's really an offshoot of funk. What you hear is a lot of layers of percussions, rototom. It incorporates Afro-Latin rhythms. Congas are the signature sound of Go-Go. But what's really unique about Go-Go is that the audience is part of the band. I love you so much. Oh, you're me now. You're hearing a lot of shout-outs. You're spoiling me, y'all. I'm going to start off easy. A lot of stamping, neighborhoods, you know, communities, crews. So it's a conversation between the band and the community. And so if you sort of hear it out of context, like over the radio or even over on a street corner, you really actually can't understand it. You have to be in the room at a go-go or at a party when it's happening. And you also have to have the cultural scripts that people have spent their whole lives learning. Mm -hmm. Who are the 49th Street Honeys? You know, you know. <laughs> <laughs> who are the 49th Street who is, who is Lisa of the World? She was a big uh, graffiti artist back in the 80s. You know, so you'll hear those people getting shouted out. Mm-hmm. You know, who who is Tony Lewis? Who is Rayful Edmonds? Mm-hmm. You know, these are people who you would know about if you were in the go-go in the 80s. So that's what I talked about a lot in my book. Like, it's really a record of D.C., you know, and it's sort of like a beautiful interactive record. It's party music. It's it's soulful. People dance. It's really you get sweaty. It's not like cute sort of pose like hip hop to me is more stylized. And that's really what I grew up on mostly as hip hop. Go-Go is just it's really hardcore partying. Mm. Like it's like a bandana to catch your sweat because right, right, right. So it's a workout. Yeah. Exactly. It is a workout. Mm. It is serious. About to beat your feet. Okay. Yes. So what were the currents that were going on in D.C. in the late 70s, early 80s that made Go-Go flower here? It's post-segregation, post-white flight, post-black flight, Mm -hmm. middle-class black flight. So really, like, for the first time, these housing markets began to be opened up to black people and people took advantage of them. And in the meantime, the core of Washington really had become blacker. It became poorer. And so Go-Go really comes out of that space. So Chuck Brown is, is a really popular blues guitarist. He plays everything, jazz, blues, funk. He played everything. He's playing at a club called the Maverick Room at 4th and Rhode Island, um, Northeast. There were go-go's back in those days, but there weren't any go-go music. Go-go's were the affair itself. 
That was Chuck Brown in the 1989 documentary, Go Go Swing. And he was sort of experimenting with different sounds. And he said the moment the beat happened, he knew it because people started jumping on tables. And so he said, keep it right there. Mm -hmm. And so they really sort of like that became the sound of the city. And everybody followed Chuck, you know, bands like Rare Essence, Trouble Funk. And so it was almost like a meme where people sort of picked up the beat. (laughs) Right. And they and they kept it. All of a sudden, yeah, we had set a trend for other bands to follow, and that was a great feeling. Nothing can be more, uh, there ain't no greater compliment than to have somebody to follow what you're trying to do. That helps you, you know. And everybody joining in. Next thing you know, D.C. had their own sound. So Chuck is like the godfather, the head of it. But what's really amazing about Go-Go is how much it inspired so many musicians in the community to pick up the instruments and start their own band. So mm-hmm. it's very hyper-local. Every neighborhood had a band. High school, prom is a go-go band that would perform. And there's a whole economy that comes out of go-go, right? So like the musicians, and then you've got the sound engineers, the promoters, Mm -hmm. the club owners. And there was a lot of cultural entrepreneurship that came about loosely tied to the go-go culture. And there was a lot of pressure. Like you didn't wear Sean John. That was for those Bamas. (laughs) Those was for the New York Bamas depending on what part of the neighborhood you lived in. So if you lived in our neighborhood, you would wear We Are One. You would not wear Sean John. If you lived uptown off George Avenue, you wore Madness. If you lived in Southeast, you wore Hobo. If you lived in Northeast, you wore Shooters. And so there's a lot of hip-hop musicians, a lot of great hip-hop musicians out of D.C., but they were really marginalized because Hmm. Go-Go was the dominant thing to do. That really changed. You know, that was sort of like, that has really sort of transformed um, in the past 20 years. There's not as much pressure to wear the local clothing lines. Um, there is, and actually some of them are not even around anymore. The height of Go-Go in the 80s mm-hmm. corresponds with the crack era, right? And yes. so Go-Go became associated with the crime of the crack era. Um, can you talk about sort of the ways that that affected the way Go-Go was policed, like literally policed yes. by the city of D.C.? Yes. So part of... Many of the resident black residents who lived through, you know, the really difficult times in D.C. And I won't call them the bad times in D.C. So I have to also say this about um, the 80s when Go-Go was at its height. A lot of black bi- cultural businesses were at the, their height as well during that time. Mm-hmm. There were at least, I think between a dozen to 20 black-owned vegan restaurants and spaces. Wow. In D.C.? In the 80s? In D.C. So when people come and talk about, oh, it was D.C., like, it's so great now. It was just terrible before. That's just not true. There Mm. were all, there are so many, you know, cultural movements that really flourished here in D.C., and Go-Go was one of them. But because that also coincided with an epidemic of drug addiction, Mm -hmm. you know, so you had a new drug that sort of took over much the way that opioid has taken over now. You had guns were flooding in. You had a lot of violence over those drug markets. And so all of that coincided with Gogo's rise. And so because Gogo is the meeting place, a lot of those conflicts would play out outside Gogo's, inside Gogo's, you know, because this is where the people came to gather. Mm-hmm. And so somehow in people's minds, that conga became associated with those bullets. And so it's really sad that, you know, instead of really identifying, okay, what is the source of this scourge? The easy thing for the communities, and, and I'm not just talking about the white people because black people were in charge. The easier thing to do was to just shut down the go-go. So they passed curfew laws that surgically removed go-go 
So like if you were if you were going to a ballet and you were a teen, 17 year old, you could go mm-hmm. the sort of white or European cultures. They lobbied to make sure that, OK, well, that doesn't this that doesn't this yeah. curfew doesn't that doesn't pertain to the that, those things. No, because those are the good culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what we want to do is get rid of the bad culture. Um, and so what do those bills do to Go-Go? Go-Go still thrived. They just mm-hmm. sort of moved the party. I mean, the Go-Go really just can't stop, won't stop. By the time I start writing about Go-Go in like the early 2000s, um, most of the shows were in P- Prince George's County. PG County, which is right outside of D.C. Yes, Prince George's County. Mm-hmm. By then, you know, a lot of the scene had moved to uh, Prince George's County, but there's kind of like a back and forth that you'll find, you know? So like when it gets hot in PG, then people come to D.C. When it gets hot in D.C., people go to PG. You say get hot, you mean like when the law enforcement starts cracking down? Yes, or? when mm-hmm. law enforcement cracks down, you know, if there are tragedies, like there were tragedies, I mean, people did lose their lives in this era of D.C.'s history. Mm-hmm. And so people were really trying to cope with tremendous amount of loss of human life, both from addiction and also from gun violence. So in U Street in particular, there was a Club U, yes. right, uh, which used to be in an old, that severe looking municipal building on yes. 14th and U. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize that at night it would turn into yeah. a club and everything would pop over there. Yeah. And there was an incident there yeah. that sort of heralded this greater change on U Street. So one, can you just put U Street in context for us? Like mm-hmm. U Street was the Black Broadway, right? Yes. Okay. So U Street was the Black Broadway. Black people were not allowed at the Warner Theater. They were not allowed at, at the white performance venues. Mm-hmm. And so they were put on U Street. <laughs> um, there was the Lincoln Theater that was there and then the Howard Theater. So you have two historically black theater. So that's right behind where Metro PCS store is. Like, literally right there. Yeah. Literally like right behind it. Mm-hmm. So this was the place where black people went. And so this is where, you know, c- the community that comes out of Howard University, you know, these the highly Which educated. Which is right, Howard is a mile, maybe half a yeah, mile up so the road. It's, it's sort of like a triangle between mm-hmm. Howard University's campus to the Howard Theater, which is right behind Metro PCS. Um, and then the U Street corridor, uh, which goes a little bit to the west. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is the corridor, but it was always a very diverse place. So Langston Hughes used to write about 7th Street and the blues people because he, you know, he spent some time in D.C. He wasn't a fan of D.C. Negroes. No, he wasn't. <laughs> but he loved 7th Street. Mm-hmm. He loved the, the working class culture that was there. Mm-hmm. You know, he really, and this was like, what, the 1930s? But he talked about D.C. He said, D.C. is the place where black people uh, they they went to college and they never let you forget it. You know, like he was, he was very... <laughs> I mean, nothing <laughs> has changed. Has it changed, right. It has, not, it has not changed. It has not changed. And so, um, so yeah, but that was U Street. So it was really a sort of a hotbed of movement. And on the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated in Tennessee, there were people in town on around U Street when word got out because he was coming to, to organize his Poor People's March in D.C. In D.C., right. And so, you know, in 68, that was this place that during the uprisings, that's where, like, U Street really went up in flames. And so it really sat burned up for a really long time. A lot of it had not been rebuilt. Just vacant and divested. Vacant, divested. Um, you know, there was a lot of prostitution, mm-hmm. um, open-air drug markets, and... What the city did, and this was under Marion Barry, they decided to put a municipal building there. Mm-hmm. So that was the Reeve Center. And so that was erected in 1986, I believe. So like the height of go-go. The height of go-go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so during the day, I think FEMA was in there. There were all these really boring government agencies that did their work <laughs> during the day at the, right. at the uh, Reeve Center. And at night, it became Club U. Mm-hmm. And 
there was one night in 2005 that was just a really bad night. And there were a lot of fights that broke out that day. And there was some sort of altercation. Somebody went to their car to get their gun. And so it ended up in a tragedy where a young man was killed. And so this is sort of when the first sort of stirrings of of U Street's revival (laughs) started, where you started having some new condos that had been built um, on U Street. And there was a movement to remove the liquor license so you write that most of the fans, most of the adherents of GoGo, most of the practitioners of GoGo were black, mm-hmm. but all black people did not bang with GoGo. There was a very stark class divide when GoGo was sort of taken yes. root. So you even see it with this controversy, right? Mm-hmm. So what really set things off was when this Howard student posted, "There's no GoGo at the quarter," and you know this is wrong. But if you notice in that first tweet, she says, "I don't even like GoGo," but <laughs> so that's a class thing, and also it's like a cultural thing too. Because if she she's a college educated or college, she's, she's a college student, she's outside she's the area, right. right? So she, what I prefer that people would say was that they don't have the, the tools to understand. <laughs> <laughs> they don't possess the cultural scripts to fully understand GoGo, mm-hmm. right? But when you say you don't like GoGo, that sort of puts you in a different class. So like, you know, institutions like my beloved institution where I teach and mm-hmm. where I'm a graduate of is Howard. They have not embraced GoGo, you know, as a whole. Like, Which is interesting considering the geography, right? I mean, if U Street has been so pivotal, like so yes. central to the culture yes. and is literally right up the road. Yeah, but we are a complex people. <laughs> you know, we are not a monolith. Mm-hmm. Some people identify with things and some people and also Gogo is a class marker. So it's really identified with working class black culture in DC. And so that's why it's particularly significant that it would be there at a prepaid mobile store right. because that's their market. Mm-hmm. But again, when it comes down to it, that Howard student was still riding for Metro PCS. Mm-hmm. I'm here riding for Metro PCS. You know, there's, you know, we're, there's some things that we're going to sort of take a stand around united, you know, as a community. So, but U Street is, I mean, you lived in this neighborhood now, Shaw. Like Forever. you went to Howard, you lived yes. in Shaw for two I've decades same, now. Same zip code since like, yeah. And that's where like, the Metro PCS is, yep. right? How's it changed and what has it been like to watch that change? I mean, it's just constantly disorienting. You know, mm-hmm. I'm constantly like, well, where am I? What What is going on here? Like, there's constantly new buildings and, like, the whole architecture of the place has been transformed. So there's, um, you know, a lot of the, the architectural landscape, is tra- there's so many pop-ups and new buildings that sort of aren't really in line with the architectural history. And then the people that have come. I mean, like, just to see white people. I mean, I shouldn't be surprised at this point, but I am, mm-hmm. like, over and over again. I'm just like, oh. It's safe to say that when you walk down U Street now, it's mostly white people, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There, it is mostly white people. But um, black people still live in this place. Black people built this place. All of this is sort of reconstruction history. Emancipation comes nine months early here, mm-hmm. right? So D.C. becomes a line of freedom, so if you're a slave in Maryland or Virginia, all you have to do is walk over that line, you know. And so like tens of thousands of people flooded into D.C. from that time. Mm-hmm. Howard University is created during that time, you know. And then even if you look at before that, um, you know, a lot of scholars, Clarence Lusane was also at Howard. He wrote um, about how black men built the White House, mm-hmm. you know. So like we're 
we are tied up into the bricks of this place. We're tied in the bricks of this country. It's important not to talk about, and I did it in my book, so I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm guilty of this not too. Not in the past tense. We're not past tense. We're here and, you know, things that happened with this whole uh, central communications, Metro PCS, T-Mobile situation, it reminds us that now we're here, we're still a force, and you really need to respect that and learn about it. That was Natalie Hopkinson, the author of Go Go Live. And we're going to go out on a song that Natalie said was giving her life. It's from DC's own backyard band, Keep It Gangsta. Keep it gangsta. She took a couple days to think through this question because when we asked her what song was given her life, she was like, it's very political in the Google world. You can't say the wrong thing. Less people <laughs> think you don't know what you're talking about and then you represent the wrong group. So, yeah. Hopefully she's cool with keeping a gangsta. <laughs> <laughs> That's our show. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. Sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash code switch. This episode was produced by Maria Paz Gutierrez, and I helped out a little bit. It was edited by Sammy Yenigan. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch familia. Steve Drummond, Leah Danella, Karen Griggs-Debates, Kat Chow, Adrian Florido, Kamari Devarajan, and our intern, Tiara Jenkins. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Shireen Marisol Meraji. Be easy, y'all. Peace. Hey, it's Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another, and we're making the month of April all about women in comedy. We've got Greta Lee and Leslie Headland from the Netflix series Russian Doll, the beloved Retta from NBC's Parks and Recreation, and many more. Spread the word, listen, and subscribe now.